Comics. Let's now have Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019-2020 Lecture. 37 introductory lecture on Dante's Paradiso. Cantos 22-27, but mostly 24-27, as I said earlier today. The Sphere of the Fixed Star Slice 261-302. And remember, we're going to go fairly quickly through St. James and St. John and their examinations uh, of Dante on both hope and then love. Alright, now... Recall where we ended yesterday. It was the case that St. Peter, um, Peter was quizzing Dante on faith and what his particular faith was. And Dante had given a, a, a definition of faith, which I'll go back and show you very quickly, which was faith is the substance of things hoped for and the argument for what is not seen. And so um, Dante then says that uh, his evidence for this comes from the Old and the New Testament, from the Bible, and particularly what in the Bible? Well, the miracles in the Bible. Certain miracles are said to occur, certain prophecies occur, interpretations of dreams, certain things like in the New Testament, Jesus walking on water, and then, uh, of course, being resurrected from the dead, certain miraculous things that do not happen during everyday life. And so Dante uses that as evidence for why he has faith. How could these things, which he does not understand, happen if there were not something beyond his comprehension? And that is why he has faith, and I, I think that's a fairly uh, sound argument. If there are things that you do not understand which still happen to happen, then there must be things outside of your understanding, and so it is important to have faith that some things work um, uh, in a way that you cannot or at least do not understand. Um, after the souls in the fixed stars hear this, they sing a Te Deum Laudamus, not the first time that we've heard that. We praise you, O God, or we praise God in the highest. And then Peter brings Dante to the highest branches of this tree. And remember, again, we're going to see lots of uh, garden and uh, floral um, metaphors coming up here. Tree metaphors, rose metaphors, plant metaphors, garden metaphors, um, in any case. Now, not only does Peter quiz Dante on what the definition of faith is and what his proof is for, um, for believing what he does, he actually asks him for a testament of faith as well. And Dante replies, and this is, uh, this is very similar to, uh, um, and, uh, hmm, how do I say this? This is uh, similar to sort of a paternoster. And so he says, I believe in one God who moves all the heavens with love and desire and is himself Unmoved, which is itself a very strange uh, perception of what a God is. It, it suggests that God is love and desire, something that draws humans th to itself through their desires. But also, very curiously, if you look at the end of this statement, is himself unmoved. Well, where does that language come from, unmoved? Well, it comes from Aristotle's idea of God, which is as the unmoved mover, the fixed point at the center of the universe that draws all things back towards itself. Um, and so Dante is not simply giving a Christian um, or a Catholic um, uh, uh, statement of faith here, but also he is including pagan elements in it as well, just as he has been doing throughout the entirety of this poem. Again, joining that which is Greco-Roman to that which is definitively uh, Catholic. All right, good. And so recall that Dante believes in three eternal persons, one essence, one unity, a trinity, which is both singular and plural. That's part of the paradox of what is called the trinity or the, uh, the tripartite and yet unified God of the medieval Florentine Catholics that Dante was a member of. All right. Peter then accepts this uh, definition in this testament of faith, flies three times around Dante's head, returns to uh, uh, circle the or orbit 
the Virgin Mary, and we move on to St. James. Now, we're not going to have the entire um, uh, examination by John and James here, and most scholars don't even really include the fixed stars in their lectures, so I'm going to go fairly quickly here. First, I'll say a couple things about James, and then I'll read a couple quotes from James, and then tell you about two of the major issues that he was involved in in his day. So, St. James, he was the brother of the Apostle John, traditionally, uh, and that's the one that we're about to meet. He famously wrote an epistle call, called the Epistle of James, which I believe is the actu actually the last letter in the New Testament, the last work in the Bible. Um, and this is a quote from it on hope. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So the idea behind that is you have to have hope that the thing that you've been waiting for is going to come. And um, very famously, St. James also takes a position on the uh, traditional faith versus acts debate. A very famous uh, debate throughout the history of all um, uh, Christianity, and especially between uh, Catholics and Protestants and differing groups of Protestants, is what justifies uh, you in the eyes of the divine, of God? Is it your faith? Or is it your actions? Do you just have to believe something? Or do you have to demonstrate your belief in something? And actually, uh, St. James kind of comes down in the middle on that. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So he, I think he... I think he makes a pretty good point there. Continuing. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled and says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. All right, all right. Uh, last quote. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do. And not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Alright, and so we can see that uh, what St. James seems to believe here is that you can't simply have faith alone or deeds alone. That you represent, that you embody your faith in your deeds. So if a poor person comes up to you who is hungry and cold, uh, it is not appropriate, as he said, just to say, uh, go, go, go be faithful, blessed be you, I hope that warmth comes to you. He, he more suggests that a, a more appropriate action would be to find some lodging for that person, get them some food, and help them to actually be warm and well-fed. Sort of, sort of like how the five kids take in Odysseus, uh, uh, when he, or rather, when Nausicaa gives uh, him a bath and clothing, when he is uh, 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 without, uh, well, when he is dirty and without clothes, when she first meets him. In any case, yes. So, for this St. James, he says that your faith is shown by your deeds. He uses Rahab, who we recall from the spirit of Venus, uh, and uh, the first person sent in, or led into heaven by Jesus, um, from the sphere of Venus. And, um, 
Well, let's keep moving. Let me see, let's see, let's see. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll just read this to you because this is a statement about the future that's actually good for Dante. So the last time we heard about the future for him, we heard from Kachkwita that he's going to be exiled. That's a bummer. However, St. James does say something in uh, lines 25, or Cantor 25, 1 to 10, that, is, uh, that should cause Dante some hope. If it ever happens that the sacred poem to which both heaven and earth have set their hands, to, oh, sorry, this is Dante speaking, so that it has made me thin for many a year, should overcome the cruelty which shuts me out uh, from that lovely fold where I slept a lamb, that's Florence, the enemy of wolves who war against it, with a different voice now and with different fleece, I shall come back, poet, and at the font of my baptism I shall put on my wreath. All right, very good. Dante calls himself a lamb. A lamb is something which is sacrificed, so he will be a sacrifice for his homeland of Florence to try and expel the wolves that eat lambs like him. And uh, he intends to become a poet who, would, who will inscribe the story of his people, an honest story of his people, and so that it will live on long beyond his death. All right, let's see, do I want to, okay. And the last thing I want you to know about James, who tests Dante on hope, is uh, Dante's definition of hope that he gives St. James. St. James asks him, what is hope? Where does it come from? How is hope a garland? And Dante responds, hope is a certain expectation of future glory. So it sounds a little bit like faith, but remember that hope was part of the definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, an argument for things which are not seen, just as hope is a certain expectation of future glory. All right, interesting, weird. Um, Dante then attempts to look into a light. He, he seems to see St. John. And a story about St. John that was popular in the medieval imagination was, uh, was that um, uh, St. John took his body into heaven. Very weird thing to do. Usually you die, your body goes into the ground, and your soul rises to heaven, back into the planetary sphere. However, that uh, physically occurs, uh, if the soul is physical at all. Um, not so with John, some believe. Some believe that he actually was assumed into heaven with his body. Uh, uh, other people in the Christian theology that supposedly had that happen, uh, Jesus and uh, Mary as well. Some even think in the Old Testament, Elijah too, who rode a fiery chariot up uh, into the sun, essentially. Um, well, in any case, Dante wants to see whether this is actually true. Does St. John actually have a body? He's really, really trying to look. And while he looks, he's looking at a very bright light. And while he's looking at this really bright light, he looks a little too long and, boof, he loses his sight. He goes blind. And he's pretty nervous about that at first. But he will regain his sight uh, soon enough. But for the moment, while he talks to St. John about love, he is blind. Uh, perhaps emphasizing the old cliche that love is blind. Here's St. John. Notice that eagle next to him. Uh, there we go. St. John the Apostle. A couple things I just want you to know uh, about him. We're not going to focus on him very long, even though he was the most beloved of Christ. Notice the eagle next to him. He is often represented as an evangelist by an eagle. There are four evangelists, four gospel writers. They are represented by four creatures. One by an ox, one by a, uh, an eagle, one by a lion, and one by a man. Uh, and uh, this one uh, John happens to be represented by the eagle, which we know is, uh, you know, quite the, quite the statement as the Romans, the Trojans, and, of course, Jupiter himself are represented by the eagle. So this is a fairly regal individual. Now, his gospel was considered the most insightful or the most philosophical of the gospels. It's not so much a, a regular narrative 
as it considers philosophy. In fact, even the very beginning of it is very famous. In fact, if somebody knows very little about the New Testament and the different Gospels within it and the different starts of the Gospels, they probably still think that this is the beginning of the Bible, uh, as it were. Um, in the beginning was the word, that word word in Greek. The New Testament obviously was written in uh, Hellenistic Greek, whereas the Old Testament was written in Arabic, uh, even though Jesus spoke in Aramaic, so you should know all those things. Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And uh, scholars have puzzled over what that means uh, for a long time, but I'll say that uh, just a sort of cursory interpretation would mean something like humans changed from one species to another the moment that they had a conscious mind. And that that was the beginning of humanity, even if not, uh, and the uh, beginning of the recognition of the world by humans, even if not the actual beginning of the world. It, it's sort of like a Buddhist code. If, there, uh, if there's no one to hear a tree fall in the forest, did it fall? If there's nobody to be conscious of the world, is there a world? And uh, I think these are excellent questions. In any case, uh, Dante talks while blind with, uh, or is tested by John while blind um, on love. Now, I don't want you to write quite any of this or any of this. He goes into a very, very profound argument about how what is good is love and what love is is good. But we are not going to talk too much about that. In any case, after Dante finishes his examination on love, his sight returns. And ah, lo and behold, he can see better than he could before. And then we are approached by Adam. This, uh, this beautiful picture here, taken from the Vatican, is called the Creatia One di Adamo. Uh, di Adamo, sorry, I forgot that O at the end. Um, uh, very famous. Uh, just a couple things about it. You can see that there is an insuperable and yet tiny gap between God and man. And uh, often it's been made uh, of the case that if you really look at God and all the angels around him, this sort of looks like a what? It looks like a brain with a brain stem. Yeah. And so there does seem to be some comment being made by um, our Michelangelo here about how uh, uh, sort of man became man when he developed his mind. That does seem to be what this, um, this painting is uh, pointing towards. But there's a lot more in it as well. Uh, great masterpieces of art, whether they be poetry, philosophy, or visual art, um, you, you can say, uh, you really cannot say enough about. You can think about for the entirety of your entire uh, existence. And so, Adam. Here's the description of Adam that we take from the NIV, uh, that's translation of the Old Testament, when he was first made. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Sounds a lot like where the Cyclops lives, or Calypso's Island, uh, from the Odyssey. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Something interesting about the name Adam from Hebrew. Adam just means, or Atamos, just means man. So Adam means man. So his name's pretty bland. He's just called man all the time. Okay. The four questions, and we're going to get answers to these uh, very quickly today. They are, how long has it been since Adam was in the Garden of Eden? Remember that Dante is now going to be asking Adam these questions. He's not being quizzed by Adam, because he doesn't need to be quizzed on his faith by Adam, because Adam's not a Christian. Adam was uh, not even really a Hebrew. There, there was no religion at the time of, uh, of Adam. He is a primordial man. Um, and so uh, Dante's got some serious questions for him. How long has it been since you were in the Garden of Eden? How long since, uh, how long did mankind last in Eden? I think that's a pretty good question. What was the original language? And was the tasting of the tree, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the reason for man's exile from uh, the Garden of Eden, terrestrial paradise? 
Adam then reads Dante's mind, which we've seen uh, over and over again in these last few cantos, like a mirror reflecting. All right, question one. How long since you were in Eden, and how long did you last? So I actually have the answer to a couple of these. So first and foremost, Adam spent 930 years on Earth, meaning that he lived to be 930, ripe old age of 930, which means he lived quite a bit of time. Uh, some, uh, there are lots of theories about how to read the Old Testament, but two uh, theories that I think are very interesting is, one is this, the characters who existed closer to God lived longer. Um, and so you see Noah lives uh, quite a bit, uh, quite a few years. Adam lives quite a few years as well, if you ever read the Old Testament. They don't live a normal amount of time. You also see sort of uh, uh, God go from holding preeminent place in the Old Testament <coughs> to slowly fading into the background with the characters taking on more and more personality, almost as if he is more and more absorbed into the actions and thoughts of his characters, which I think is a, an interesting interpretation as well. In any case, Adam then spent 4,302 years in limbo, in hell, before Christ opened heaven. He has now spent 1,266 years in heaven, which means he has existed for 6,498 years as of the writing of the uh, Divine Comedy, which was in uh, between 1308 and 1321. So we could uh, safely add about 700 years to this, saying that uh, if we were to do the math, he'd be about 7,198 years old. And this is um, due to that sort of math that Dante is doing. That's why biblical literalists believe that the earth is around six or 7,000 years old because of the internal chronology within uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, uh, we, we really don't have a lot of records from humans from uh, 10,000 years or more uh, ago. And so uh, not that bad an idea, not that bad an idea. We do have some evidence of like, say, uh, sort of cave paintings, I think from even 25,000 years ago. And even somebody's done some research into how lice have co-evolved with us in order to be able to uh, to uh, ride not only on our hair, but I think also on the garments that we've worn. So people have done very interesting work to find out when humans started acting like the humans that we are today. Um, uh, ancient Instagram was that? No, I'm just kidding. In any case, um, the second answer that we get from uh, to the second question that Dante asks is, how long were you in Eden? And I, I think that's pretty good, especially for a high school student. You spend seven hours a day being uh, taught, essentially speaking. And how long did Adam last in Eden? Between six and seven hours is how long um, <laughs> is uh, how, how long Dante suggests. Not even a full day, not even a full work day. He was, and then he was uh, out of there. It didn't take him long to misbehave. But six or seven hours without misbehaving is uh, you know, not that bad. Think about how often you misbehave. In any case, scholars report this is the shortest possible interpretation you could give. Um, something also to note, if you notice the uh, movements of the heavens that are often given at the beginning of the cantos is that Dante actually spent six hours in paradise. And so the idea is that Adam spent six hours in terrestrial paradise. Dante spent six hours in actual paradise. Um, the longest interpretation that any scholar has given for how long Adam and all humanity at that time could have existed within Eden was 33 years. The reason why is that 33 uh, symbolically is the age that Jesus was when he died. Um, he lived 33 years, supposedly. And notice that three and three, very uh, symbolic number. All right, good. Now, what was the first language? You might say that this is the question that Dante has been champing at the bit to actually ask. Uh, what language did you speak, Dante? Uh, and the reason why is that in Dante's 
De Vulgari Eloquentia, a work on the vulgar languages, on uh, the different languages uh, that, are, that were around in Italy at that time. Um, and in fact, he's writing in a vulgar language at this time. He does not write in Latin, the, the Divine Comedy. He writes it in a Tuscan dialect that becomes a standardized version of Italian. Uh, in the Vulgari Eloquentia, he believed that Adam must have originally spoken in Hebrew. Well, uh, you know, a justifiable ass assumption. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and it is sort of a sacred language. Uh, and they do a lot of numerology with it. Sure, sure, it makes sense. That said, he uh, diverges from this perspective in the Divine Comedy. He no longer uh, holds this view. He has Adam here say, The language I spoke had fallen into disuse before the work that could not be completed was ever attempted by Nimrod's people. Okay, so uh, recall the story of Nimrod, the giant that we saw down in the Inferno who tried to create a tower called the Tower of Babel, from which we get the term, you're babbling, or babbling. Um, and he was attempting to join earth and heaven with a giant uh, man-made tower. And because of this, God became angry and scattered the people of the earth and brought about confusion between them. This is the mythological uh, reason for why there are differing languages that exist. Well, Adam says, even before that happened, my language had already faded. And so, you don't know my language. And you'll never know my language. And so, sorry. I speculate that his language was the language of truth, just because in uh, lines 130 to 132 in uh, Cantor 26, he says that man should speak is a natural phenomenon. We naturally speak. But whether this way or that, nature allows you to work it out, as seems best to you. And I, I think that often means something like, you can choose whether to lie or to tell the truth. You have the choice of how to use language though it is natural to you to use language. And actually, um, uh, scholars that argue against the idea that chimpanzees are conscious or, or are as intelligent as humans, which I, I don't think is exactly the hardest perspective to maintain, they say that uh, even though you can teach a couple signs and a couple words to chimpanzees, even up into the hundreds, same with dogs, um, they do not naturally attempt to develop their own languages in the same way we do. We naturally go through a babbling stage. Uh, literally, it's called the babbling stage. And uh, you naturally learn to speak and then speak. Um, uh, that doesn't happen with other animals, uh, even, even uh, the great apes that are so genetically similar to us. In any case, Adam then continues and tells um, Dante some of the original names for God. Obviously, this is very important. And uh, in the Middle Ages, how one talked about God was very important. In fact, there were three main ways. One was by negation. Since you cannot know the entirety of God, you can't say anything about God. That's the way of negation. God is not good. Because if you say God is good, you're saying he's not great. And if you're saying he's great, you're not saying he's all-powerful. And so since you can't say everything you can possibly say about God, you should say nothing about God. Okay, well, that's kind of helpful. Um, the second way to talk about God is in the superlative. God is the highest. God is the best. God is the greatest. All of that. Uh, that's one way to talk about him as well. But uh, St. Thomas Aquinas settles on, uh, uh, I think, the most effective way of talking about God, which is by analogy. So when you say God is good, you're not saying he's good like you are, you're saying he's good like he is. When you say God is great, you're not saying he's great like you are and comparing him to yourself, but great like he is. And because we have to use language, and language in some way relates to us, we obviously cannot uh, uh, convey the absolute nature of a divine being. That said, some original uh, Hebrew names of, of God, obviously uh, Adam must have called him something different, but he does share these, are Yahweh. Yahweh is the so-called Tetragrammaton, that just means the four letters in Greek. They're often represented by YHWH. And actually, there are two different accepted 
pronunciations of Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, which uh, looks correct, but also Jehovah. So if you're a Jehovah's Witness or have ever had one knock on your door, uh, that is based on this idea of uh, the name of God. The other one, El, you see this in many of the angels' names, many names in the Old Testament. Raphael, El, Gabriel, El, Azrael, El, uh, No, El, um, and uh, of course in other names as well, Israel, Elijah, and El, Eot as well. So we still maintain this El uh, uh, prefix and suffix in many of our names as well. Uh, and he says of mortal usage that it is like a leaf on a bound meat. Leaves always fall off trees, or leaves always fall off trees, meaning that language is constantly changing, just like style, uh, just like fashion. Um, I, I make a connection between that and what Diomedes says, uh, or, or what Glaucus says to Diomedes, where he talks about uh, the generations of men um, being just like uh, uh, leaves. I guess I can read it very quickly. High-hearted son of Tidius, why ask me about my birth? Remember this from Book 6 of the Iliad. Like the generations of leaves... The lives of mortal men. Now the wind scatters the old leaves across the earth. Now the living timber bursts with new buds. And spring comes around again. And so with new men. As one generation comes to life, another dies away. Same with languages. And that's certainly true. Now, Adam's final answer. Why did you get expelled from Eden? This is perhaps the most dissatisfying answer that he gets. You expect, I, I, I would expect, if I were you, sort of a big reason. And yet he gives a very simple reason. Um, he says... Now, my son, the tasting of the tree was not in itself the reason for our exile, but only the act of going beyond the bounds. So, what he's saying here is that God was in no way injured, nor even uh, technically angered by the action of men. But uh, it's, a, it's sort of a geometric explanation based on what we've seen in Jupiter. Um, there were bounds that were set, the bounds were trespassed upon, and then a punishment was given. And that's simply the order of the universe. It was simply because man trespassed on the order of the universe and had to receive his necessary punishment that he was expelled. And uh, I would say that that is a good way, especially as a young person, to look at being disciplined. You break the rules, you get a punishment. That, uh, that shows that the system you are a part of is just, not unjust, though you may feel uh, fairly put upon because of your, uh, your decision that brought that punishment upon you. But you, you should know that in a just system, it is certainly your choices that get you punished, not nothing that gets you punished. Uh, so, uh, be thinking about that. So, Adam was expelled due to breaking the rules, not because of his learning about uh, the nature of good and evil, according to Dante. I think there's a lot to think about there and a lot to be said. Um, but that is what Dante says, and we have to keep moving. All right, Peter, Canto 27. Peter gets rather upset. In fact, uh, it says that uh, I might have the quote up here. Unfortunately, I don't. It says that uh, things started to get red again, just like we had that beautiful simile that said, just like a lady who has blushed, then again becomes pale, so did Mars transition into Jupiter, so here do, uh, does that blush come back. And so Peter then denounces the church, and we will later in Camp 27 enter into the Prima Mobile, also called the Crystalline Heaven, another dual-named uh, sphere. Peter changes from silver to red, uh, just like the opposite of what happened when uh, Jupiter took over from Mars. And, uh, okay, so, why is he so upset? Why is he turning red? His anger is from the current pope. The current pope is Pope Boniface VIII. We've talked about him quite a bit. He says of Pope Boniface VIII that he has made of my burial place a sewer for blood and filth. That's pretty strong. I'll repeat that. He has made of my burial place a sewer for blood 
and Phil. That is, of course, the Vatican. Uh, that's where Peter's bones are. That is uh, supposed to be the holiest place on earth besides perhaps Jerusalem. And, um, well, uh, a sewer or blood and filth sounds like quite the opposite. It would even be a delightful Lucifer to be down there, so the devil could live there rather than, say, a representative of Jesus. That's the opposite of what it's supposed to be like. And so all things are inverted on earth, like in hell, including justice. It's almost as if what he is suggesting is that earth has become, because of the choices of man, a living hell. And uh, I would say that that is uh, Dante's perspective. The choices of man determine whether earth is more like a purgatory or a hell. In any case, specific issues. The spouse of Christ, that's the church, was not brought up upon my blood and that of Linus and Cletus, these are also martyrs, uh, so that she might be used for making money, the crime of simony. You know that that is uh, what Pope Boniface is going to be uh, punished for down in the Inferno. <clears throat> Again, the church has aims which transcend making money. What is such an aim? Uh, perhaps binding people together by genuine moral effort. Um, is that worth more than money, to be joined uh, in an endeavor that is considered even perhaps more important than you? Uh, probably that's something that uh, career counselors talk about with you. You probably want to find a purpose. They say something like that. It's not just about making money. Obviously, you need to make money, and it's very important for maintaining a family and uh, social stability that you make money. However, uh, per uh, your job, uh, if it is a vocation, some might say, should give you, uh, should give you something more than just your paycheck. Um, and uh, and uh, stress and eventually heart disease. Uh, there should be something that makes it worth it. In any case, interestingly, mm, trust as a commodity does lead to wealth in a nation. So a moral nation is a rich nation. Economically speaking, you can read a book on this if you'd like to. It's called Trust by Francis Fukuyama. We then get a list of four popes who were martyred, not making money off of their position. They were Sixtus, Pius, Calixtus, and Urban. Make sure you know those names. All right, issue two. Not only has the church been corrupted by the simony of the current leadership, Pope, factionalism is an issue. It was not our intention that one party should sit upon the right hand of our successor while the rest of Christendom sat upon the other. Now, I told you before lecture started that this issue within the Catholic Church is an issue that the founding fathers in the Federalist Papers also uh, perceived as per... Uh, uh, potentially harming the American nation. They thought two factionalism, if we had a party system, sort of like how we do now, and it became a two-party system, sort of like how it is now, that uh, that would effectively divide the nation into two. Two factions that would then come to war with each other, sort of like the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, or the White Guelphs and the Black Guelphs. And um, so... This issue of factionalism is an issue that is both secular and sacred. Regardless of whether it is a church issue or a civil issue, when uh, one large unity becomes two fairly large unities, often those two unities, what with each other, of course? Argue. Collide, argue, fight, right. And so um, uh, Dante, or rather uh, Peter's idea here, is that people should be far more like St. Bonavis and St. Thomas Aquinas in heaven. Rather than uh, simply focusing on the differences between them, they should focus on what their common aim. So even though Pope, or excuse me, uh, Boniface was very different from Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas obviously university professor. Boniface was similar too, but they had differing ideas on what the Christian faith was. They both, uh, they both were Catholics. They both were Christians. 
the idea, of course, uh, that the Federalists would have us believe today is like, even if you're a Republican represented by an elephant and you're uh, uh, very upset about, say, let's say the border, or if you're, say, and you're a Democrat represented by a donkey, and you're very upset about the fact that uh, not everybody in the world has a living wage. Well, you can still come together in the fact that you live in America, you speak the same language, and you care about a lot of the same things, even if you don't focus on all the same things. Uh, the idea seems to be you have far more that joins you together when you're a part of the same group than splits you apart. And I would encourage you when you get into arguments with your friends and family uh, that you keep that sort of thing in mind. The thing you're arguing about is probably a very small part of your life and of your relationship. And so don't just focus on those tiny little differences. Focus on what joins you together. And that is the idea that Peter has here. And, and that is the idea behind loving your neighbor, um, not just antagonizing your neighbor. Obviously, everybody has a lot of flaws. Okay, great. we got to move on from there. All right, good. Okay, so he then finishes, and we're going to finish this very quickly, um, by saying the church should not be used as a symbol to call for war. There should not be crusades. It should not be the case that a symbol of peace on the world, uh, Christianity, where a man literally dies for other people, is then used to join people together to uh, uh, die for to die for it. I don't even know how to put that quite right. Blood should not be spilled either between other Christians or Christians and Christians, or or even to get this promised land. Uh, seems to be the idea of Peter. It's a very very anti-war sort of perspective. And remember that Dante himself had been a fighter, had been a warrior. He fought in the Battle of Campodino in uh, 1289. And so uh, he has Peter come down very viciously against using the church to call together people in order to engage in war, which is, I'd say, a very progressive idea for his time. Um, it should not also be a symbol for corrupt privileges. That's simony slash indulgences. You shouldn't be uh, giving, nepotistically giving your family uh, good positions, uh, good cushy jobs within the church. And, um, well, that's what he says. Uh, Peter ends by telling Dante to reveal to us what he has learned. Um, and so, so he has. So he has. All right. As I said, this lecture is going to be a little shorter than yesterday. It was.